Welcome back to Mince Levin's From the Edge. I am Jeremy Glazer, the co-chair of the Mince Levin Venture Capital and Emerging Company Practice. Mince Levin is a nationally leading law firm focused on helping emerging growth companies achieve success. Check us out at minceedge.com. Well, on today's podcast, we are really, really fortunate to have Jeff Guilford. I've known Jeff for quite a few years and worked with Jeff on a number of companies. Jeff has over 30 years of finance expertise working with both private and publicly funded companies. In 2001, Jeff co-founded Blackford Partners to focus on supporting life science, tech, and software startup companies as their first CFO, providing experience and leadership to strategy, planning, financing, reporting, and growth. Jeff is particularly well suited for this because before working for Blackford and starting Blackford, Jeff was the CFO for Order Fusion, an early stage sell-side e-commerce software provider, and he also has worked with a number of other technology companies. He's been involved in closing over $200 million in venture capital and debt financings, as well as several M&A transactions. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. We're just delighted to have you. Thank you. My pleasure. So on today's podcast, Jeff's going to discuss some of the traits of successful startups, traits that can add challenges, the various stages and modes of financing, as well as some lessons learned overall along the way. But I'd like to start, Jeff, by asking, what is the actual business of Blackford Partners? What do you do for companies? Thanks, Jeremy. In 2001, as we said, is my partner Stan Blackford and I formed Blackford Partners. And it was a, a goal to provide high-quality CFO services to startup life science and tech companies. And what we found was most of those startups form around the functional leads, but rarely include the, the, the uh, executive finance role. So we formed um, Blackford in a way to, to engage a portfolio of companies on a fractional basis to engage with them as a member of management, not as a consultant, but as a member of management to support their growth in the form of equity and debt financings, uh, strategy and planning, financial reportings, we said, or projections, and a host of other things, legal and corporate governance too, um, you know, whatever the CFO role is. Those, those roles are often, in an early stage company, distributed amongst the, the team, distracting them from pursuing their, their value drivers. Um, often they're just ignored. So a lot of these, um, even when they create mistakes, or as you, as you have encountered, these are uh, tough to fix, time consuming and expensive, and sometimes even irreversible. So um, the, our goal is to bring our experience to you know, help provide that expertise and leverage. Right. So, you know, kind of before 2001, it was kind of more common for, you know, even early stage companies to hire a full-time CFO. And it seems like after the dot-com crash, it started to change. And I think it's kind of continued to change where you, with, with, with what you're doing at Blackford seems to be more of what we're seeing, that companies are not at the early stage having a full-time CFO, but they're using either an outsourced consulting or, I like the way you describe it, kind of like you're a member of management but kind of on a part-time basis. We see the need, um, there's a gap, and there's two levels of financial support early on. There's transactional support and there's leadership. And along, for a long time, it's not a uh, function to be served by a controller. As well, uh, there's different stages. We call our service first CFO versus um, later on, there's a different level CFO as you start to engage capital markets. So we eventually transition. 
but we believe we de-risk. That, that later CFO isn't a fit at this stage, either right. their experience or expertise or their interest. Their or, their, or their cost. Or their cost. Um, so there's a need for it. Uh, there's just not a full-time role. And we've been able to be successful servicing that on a part-time basis. So we, we dial up. We're always on. Um, and we, it's our job to make sure no one ever knows that we're dating anyone else. Perfect. So to a large extent, an early stage CFO, certainly you know, handling finances, organizing the company as far as you know, legal documents, I mean, taking control of all that. But as an entrepreneur, one of the most significant things that I care the most about is raising money. Mm-hmm. And I think you guys provide a lot of really good guidance to that. What kind of guidance do you give entrepreneurs? What kind of assistance do you give them when they're out trying to fundraise? A lot of times uh, we bridge the gap between a lawyer or a board member, VC, or an advisor. And we bolt on together with the CEO to either know to which questions to ask, which questions not to ask, uh, understanding preferred stock versus common stock, understand they represent every class of investor, not just the founders, uh, and, and, and then the various protective provisions and the terms of the deal to valuation analysis. And we run through those models and own those models. Uh, so we support the company as we go through a financing. And then ultimately we help negotiate the term sheet mm-hmm. to uh, eventually we'll own closing the round to documentation with the attorneys and yourself uh, and due diligence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you've done this for a lot of companies. You did it in companies you were involved with, you've done it with companies as sort of this first CFO model. You must have some interesting stories that have come up during some of the financing events. If you don't mind, anything you'd like to share with some of our listeners about, you know, lessons learned in raising money with companies? Oh gosh, um, we've had a number of them from um, early on and, and one of my first clients that I believe you were involved with. We had. Uh, um, a situation where you were on the phone with our council, uh, where our council was uh, not at, at your level yet, now a very prominent lawyer in town. Um, but uh, we got on the phone with an issue. You brought on the, the co-syndicate, which was some of the largest strategics in the, in the world. All their lawyers were represented, and the call ran 20 seconds, <laughs> and it was over. Um, so it, uh, some of it is just... Uh, there were issues with, uh, you know, covenants not to sue from the Intels and Cisco's of the world, and what that actually meant. Where our investors were pushing us to get the deal done, but we were ultimately going to be uh, deeding over our company, basically being acquired if we didn't do it right. right. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of pieces to it. That that's an, to that's an interesting point. That sometimes it's not just about how much money are you raising and like what's the ultimate structure of the financing, but sometimes there's these things that get snuck into a deal that can really come bite you down the road that unless you're working with someone who's been there, done that, you're gonna make a mistake. Yeah, I think we were talking as well about um, you wind up with participation and future rounds requests that affect uh, what an earlier investor will come back and want to um, one of the biggest issues we try to advise to is alignment with your investor. A lot of times is where is the investor in their fund? Um, is this, and even in pursuing money, are you quality yet? Are you ready yet for a Bay Area large top tier fund? So are you wasting your time pursuing that? How much more validation do you need to do? Should you take seed capital? Should you take convertible? Should you do a convertible versus seed round? Should you uh, do a small A, all those kinds yeah, of really, things? Yeah, really valuable strategic advice. And 
And it's not just are you wasting your time, but you also can be really hurting yourself, as you and I have talked about, in the long run, if you start getting in front of VCs when you're clearly too early. I kind of like to joke with people. I always ask the question whenever I'm talking about venture capital to the crowd. I say, so what business do you think venture capitalists are in? And everybody raises their hand saying, oh, investing in companies, investing in companies. And I say, no. What does a VC do every single day? They say no to investments. Right. They make very few investments over the course of a year. So really what they're in the business in is learning how to say no to deals and get them off their table as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to be the person who makes it easy for them to say no. Because my experience, and I'm curious if it's been yours, is once they looked at it and they said no, it's pretty hard to get them to go back to yes. It is um, opposite, I think. A lot of people get concerned if they haven't responded. Uh, my advice is they are not shy about saying no. So so a non-no, it does, it not, it's not a yes, but it doesn't mean no yet. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. But I, I think it's great to have uh, an advisor, you know, like yourself, like like your partner Stan, who can really give you that sort of guidance about like where should you be looking for funding right now. So, if you don't mind, what do you what do you look for in a company to determine whether it's an angel round company versus a venture a venture back company? What are those distinctions you're looking for to guide them as to where they are in that financing stage? As far as whether we want to engage or whether they're financeable. Well, as, as well as who, they, who should they be talking to? Like when you're directing them, so like, you know, I'm a CEO and you're saying, gee, Jeremy, you know, I think you really should be going to angels, not VCs, and here's the three reasons why. What is it that determines whether I should look at angel financing versus venture financing? I, I think separating between life science and tech, um, life science today generally starts out with a larger venture round. Sure. Um, they, they're much more capital intensive efforts, um, technology companies and SaaS companies, they have the ability to get validation much faster. So I, I think um, the way today's venture rounds are, uh, what used to be A rounds are now B rounds, and seed rounds are now A rounds where everyone's requiring more validation. So I, I think I look for founding teams that have made commitments early on, they've worked without money, they've, they've created some validation, they have customers working, working products. And I think you can do that now. Okay. So a working product. So does, what does that mean? Is, is, a, is a software product you know, in beta and a, few and a few customers even though they're not paying? Is that enough that you would feel comfortable going to a venture capitalist or do I need more than that? Um, I, I think with, again, software companies, you need to put some meat on the bone. So you, you need to raise, you know, the, the way it generally, family and friends money, either your own money um, to family and friends money to eventually, I think somebody who matters, uh, an angel, preferably a sophisticated angel, mm -hmm. someone that a venture fund would look at as validation that they've invested. So somebody who understands your space that has invested in you um, provides a lot of credibility. So. What about the materials I would need? So let's assume, you know, I've engaged you. You said, yeah, Jeremy, I think your business is far enough along that you actually should be reaching out to venture capitalists. What do I need? What, what materials do I need? And how does someone like you help me in preparing those? Obviously, I mean, it starts with um, your team, a good team, good technology, and a good marketplace. Um, those, those are foundations. Aside from that, as I said, even the successes and failures in startups is is the other things it's about execution and so uh, the plan doesn't uh, no one's ever executed on a projection no one's ever executed to that plan 
But what it lays down. I gotta stop you for a second because I always tell people the only thing I know about your projections is is, is that they're wrong. It's yeah. the only thing I can tell you. <laughs> they're 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 wrong from the day you did it. So it's not whether um, it's it's the depth of thought, the assumptions. Do you understand the triggers? Also, if you're raising enough money, you know you, it's critical to get within your money to a next valuation milestone. And if you come up short, you are now in what I call Siberia. You're a tweener. And it's even harder to raise the next round if you're a tweener. Because it's hard to go back. You maybe have to do a bridge round with your current investors or raise more money in order to get past that next milestone. So that's actually a really interesting question you're raising there. So sometimes entrepreneurs get really focused on valuation. You and I deal with this all the time, right? Oh, I'm not going to take that money because the valuation is too low, or I only want to sell securities to, you know, unsophisticated individuals because they're going to give me a higher valuation. Have you? How have you seen that work out with your clients, or with companies you've been involved with? Yeah, I, I think valuation. I think, I think there's too much concern about the dilution, and that um, I think that I think that we've experienced over our careers, not just that you have to execute, but there's also big mega trend economic trends that come and wipe you out. And so I think you can't always hedge trying to raise the minimum amount of money and getting to the next milestone. You have to raise enough to understand that mistakes occur, you might not get there. It's ta it always takes longer and you burn more money. Um, and that's where I think one of the biggest failures is in leadership and execution in companies outside of failures in technology or the marketplace in that um, being very capital efficient being, being scrappy longer a lot of funding goes to failed efforts and distractions and bad hires um, and so uh, it's very sometimes I don't think that speed is all that people think it is in, in you know fast to market we have a saying of being a uh, uh, fast to hire and slow to fire is, mm -hmm. uh, is a bad combination. So, um, you know, using your assets well and executing and knowing, being tenacious about executing your business is, is essential. So this always reminds me of the, you know, kind of saying, right, hope for the best, but plan for the worst. And I think, unfortunately, that because entrepreneurs, by their nature, are optimistic, mm -hmm. they don't like to plan for the worst. They kind of really believe in their business. They think they're going to be looking at a hockey stick growth. Mm -hmm. And certainly, that can happen. But, you know, you and I, we both have gray hair. We've been doing this for a long time. I think we've both seen that more often than not, what you've described is really what happens, that there are sort of issues that come up, whether they're, you know, very often I see them on the sales side, right? I mean, you've seen this a lot where... You think you've got the right sales team, but you know, mm -hmm. three, three and four changes later, you're still trying to find the right approach, the right sales mix, the right uh, you know um, product for the for the for the market. And so, more often than not, there's going to be pivots. More often than not, there's going to be as I like the term you use, you know, money kind of being you know on bad hires and things like that. And so, you need to plan for the for that downside. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I think this is one of those things that you know to the extent that. I'm kind of making sure that our listeners are really hearing this. I want to make sure that they hear this, that this is why it's important to work with people like you, Jeff, who've, who've done this a bunch of times. You've seen the movie over and over again. And so, you know, you can, you can be in there and be rah-rah with the team, but then also tell them, yeah, yes, but let's be a little more conservative. Let's raise a little more capital. Let's figure out how we can have that on the side in case things don't work out as we hoped. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Absolutely, and never goes to plan. So you have to manage constantly and re-engineer. Even even in hiring, um, you know, organizational development issues is every time you hire, you have ten people, you hire two, you've now sort of broken it, mm-hmm. and, and so you have to re-engineer and make sure everyone knows their jobs. Um, but I think back to your comment, I think too many people are worried about uh, the dilution and trying to get a little further instead of um, raising a little bit extra money. They say no one ever complained about having too much capital, but you can overraise, and and you can raise too soon as well. Sure. So you you were involved with a company that actually went public through a reverse merger many years ago, and so that's kind of a classic example of where sometimes entrepreneurs they get so focused on valuation and not you know. I don't want to be working with these, you know, vulture, vulture capitalists, right? All these great terms we hear people throwing around. And so they think, oh, I can get a higher, you know, valuation and raise money by doing one of these reverse merger transactions. Um, you and I went through this experience together. I think it would be really interesting to hear about some of the lessons learned in that process when you look back on that. And, and in particular, having gone through the whole ride, when you look back now, if you were sitting down with that founder again, you know, what would you tell them? Would you still go down that road? Is it something you would recommend for companies? And if not, why? Wow, that's a big one. Um, and it made me shiver when you talked about reverse merger. <laughs> um, I usually shiver too. <laughs> is I mentioned earlier about alignment and financing. And so we have an expression that says when you high five in the boardroom that you just closed a financing, but you actually just destroyed your company. Um, you either raised the wrong kind of money uh, you you raised it with the wrong investor, or you raised it through the wrong mechanism. And uh, reverse mergers are very tough. Uh, I think there's a lot of people around reverse mergers that make a lot of money, and the company is generally left underfunded in most cases. Uh, having I think it's much more expensive than everyone believes. Um, we're constantly uh, with CPAs and, and expensive lawyers doing filings and always raising, always back with the SEC, registering more shares. Um, but also the, um, the disclosure issues with investors was always a pivot about what you could tell them, which was on public information, and those expectors, investors expect that. Nature of investors, yeah. And just nature, to be, so, and, but it's a very just, different nature just to, of investors. And just to be clear, when we're talking about reverse mergers, I'm not talking about... You know, for example, in the biotech space, we've been seeing a lot of companies where there's a, a, a really an established biotech company that their drug failed, they still have a bunch of capital, and so a private company with a more robust pipeline merges into that existing public company in a similar space. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about that. What we're talking about is kind of almost like these shell type mergers, right? These companies that are just being held out there and being marketed as public company shells. And that's, that's what we're talking about, where there's a lot of real risk for the entrepreneur. And yet these are marketed out there pretty consistently. And I think people have a misunderstanding about the level of liquidity that they're going to get in that kind of a market. And, and I think, again, you've experienced this. One of the main reasons that you want to be a public company is you want what's called liquidity. You want the ability to raise capital quickly. And you also want the ability for your investors to be able to exit the investment and have, and have a liquidity event. Um, unfortunately, these what I call you know shell companies or sort of non-operating company reverse mergers, and it's not never, but they rarely give that outcome. And I think you kind of lived through that for some for some interesting years. 
it's hard it's hard to reach that outcome i mean especially being a a small private company with not a lot of history um, and and having to do disclosures of everything is is um, is material yes. right so uh, it, it's a real dynamic to cross that a company that is still trying to figure out its product its market its people its team and all those things being um, public and then you get the a lot of companies over the years have uh, biotechs have gone public yes um, but their news their news is is not there's they're preclinical or early clinicals so they don't have active news cycles and so that's hard to keep the stock up you don't have a lot of information so um, it's an interesting path and I mean the biotechs are different but for technology companies I tend to prefer the dynamic of venture capital I think there's even, a even if there's a lower valuation because I think that's kind of for me kind of the key message that I want to make sure entrepreneurs hear that don't get so hung up on the valuation there's a lot of other things that matter that are going to determine whether or not you're going to be successful yeah I mean in addition to the valuation you're talking about all the protective provisions and um, I always say people get concerned about uh, majority on the board or things like that I said they already own you I mean, so it does don't worry about it at the board level it's everything every decision is basically a hundred percent and if it's not, um, then there's a dispute, and and that's a, a different matter. But I, I'm trying to um, answer your question between venture as a as a source, and I think that that a, venture brings a dynamic. I, I believe whether whoever you bring on, whether it be an employee or an advisor or a lawyer or an investor, anybody needs to have the passion for your success, not just be doing it because they're in that business. And I believe that uh, an independent board member that hasn't made an investment in your company hasn't crossed that, that holy grail. And, and a venture fund is totally aligned to your success and passionate about your success. And so I think they, they bring that. Um, and I think the dynamic changes a little bit if you do a reverse merger. Well, this is great. We, we could yeah. probably continue to yeah. talk about this uh, nonstop because there's so much interesting information about these different ways to raise companies, but we do need to wrap up. Jeff, I want to just thank you so much for taking the time and coming and speaking with us. Really valuable information. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks as always, Jeremy. I am Jeremy Glazer of Minns 11, and thank you again for listening to this edition of From the Edge.